I have to stipulate for the sake of this podcast that I am high on cold medicine right now. Welcome back to like the common cold. <laughs> Literally a cold open. <laughs> oh, oh. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. First of all, thanks to Micah for filling in for me last week. I was on vacation, now I'm a little sick, so bear with me if I'm a little raspy today. But anyway, last week, over 100 Republicans signed a letter threatening to split from the Republican Party if the party does not make changes. Those changes largely having to do with breaking with Trumpism. The list included former elected officials like former Virginia Representative Barbara Comstock, former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, and other outspoken critics of President Trump. As we've talked about on this podcast, a viable third party seems like a stretch. But today we're going to talk about what would actually have to happen for the GOP to split and have a third party emerge in American politics. So not will this effort work as much as what would have to happen in order for any effort to work. Then later on in the show, our science team is going to join to discuss the CDC's new guidance that vaccinated people don't need to wear masks or socially distance indoors. The CDC doesn't set the law, of course, so that guidance will interact with politics and perceptions of the CDC that have evolved over the past year and a half. We'll also take a look at how vaccination efforts are going and how Americans are thinking about the risks of the coronavirus at this point in the pandemic. And we're going to ask our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling. So let's get to it. Here with me, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Caleb. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Also with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. Welcome back. Thank you. You know, I feel like getting just a common chest cold is a true return to normalcy, but also being on vacation. I left the country for the first time since the pandemic. So it was very interesting and very normal feeling to like be at a packed JFK airport. We went to Mexico. It was lovely, beautiful country, etc. And on that topic, for transparency's sake, Micah did a lot of the prep for today's podcast because I was still on vacation over the weekend, and he left us with two options for good use of polling or bad use of polling, both of which we heard from listeners about. So the first one was a YouGov poll about the animals that Americans feel most like they could take on in a fight. And the second was a conclusion from a trade group of pollsters that the polling error in the 2020 election was the worst in 40 years. I still have vacation brain, so we are going to tackle the first use of polling today, and then maybe another day we'll talk about that trade group of pollsters and their conclusions about polling in 2020. So let's get to it. Sarah, Jeff, are you guys ready for this good use or bad use of polling? Let's dive in. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so YouGov asked Americans which animals they thought they could beat in a fight if they were unarmed. And they broke out their responses by men and women. And the kinds of animals they asked Americans about were grizzly bear, lion, elephant, gorilla, crocodile, wolf, kangaroo, chimpanzee, king cobra, large dog, eagle, medium-sized dog, goose, house cat, rat. And that actually goes in order from the animals that Americans felt least comfortable beating in a fight to most comfortable beating in a fight. And so they took all of this data, and the conclusion that they headlined the survey with was, compared to women, 
men feel most able to take on medium-sized dogs and geese. And the numbers that accompany that conclusion are when it comes to beating a medium-sized dog in a fight, 39% of women felt comfortable that they could beat a medium-sized dog and 60% of men. And then when it came to a goose, it was 51% of women and 71% of men. So is this a good use of polling or bad use of polling in the sense of like, what does this tell us? Does this tell us something substantive other than being clickbait? It tells us that women have a better sense of how bad geese are. So in that, I'd have to say good use of polling. Geese are vile creatures. And I think this poll captures that women are a lot more realistic about what a goose encounter would entail. Wait, flesh that out. You're saying that like a human being couldn't actually take on a goose unarmed and women are more level-headed about that fact? That's exactly what I'm saying. Geese agitated, that is a no good situation. They go after, they bite, they would go after your ankles. I think it would be more of a a flight, not fight situation. And I think this poll captures that women are more realistically coming to terms with that than men. I would say broadly that this is a good use of polling for showing that there are a lot of men with really unrealistic expectations about their fighting ability. And I say that because even like 23% said they could fight a king cobra. How are you fighting a king cobra when it's like snapping super fast, you know, and biting you? I think there's two parts of this. One part is that some of these answers surely are at least a little in jest, like a a small number of them. You always get like 3% of people saying something ridiculous, and it's hard to know just how serious they are. So in this case, it's like, well, you know, for grizzly bear, lion, elephant, gorilla, crocodile, you get 10% or fewer people saying, yeah. Right, and men and women really agree on those. Yeah. We're not really going to fight those. So I think too many people were saying yes to that, so maybe a small number are being a little unserious with this question, which is also a somewhat unserious question, to be frank. But then you start to see this gender gap grow, and I do think it says something about men having a super, super unrealistic expectation about their fighting ability. I mean, I would say personally that I think a rat and a house cat are the only thing on this list that I would (laughs) would think about answering yes to. Geese are mean as hell. Medium-sized dogs are practically like small wolves. And 16% of men said yes to a wolf. And 60% said yes to a medium-sized dog. Like dogs have teeth. They'll bite the hell out of you. It's just crazy. (laughs) So as you suggested, on the extreme ends, men and women mostly agree. So like when it comes to a house cat and a rat, most men and women are not that far apart on their feeling they could both beat them. And the same goes for, you know, like a grizzly bear and a lion. Men and women generally don't feel like they can beat one of those animals. It's the middle part where we get a lot of division. And I guess my question here was a lot of the commentary on the internet that I was catching up on this morning was like, oh, wow, like men just don't really understand how dangerous geese are. But what is this question getting at? We like to be specific when it comes to polling about the question being asked. And it said, do you think you could beat in a fight if you were unarmed? So is this a situation where like one of the two animals is dying? It's either you or the goose? Because like if you're truly confronted with the idea that a goose is going to kill you, I don't know that I would say that I'm just going to lay down and let a goose kill me. 
Like, what is this question actually asking? Because like, yes, geese are mean, but like, what if you decide to be mean back? I guess I hadn't factored in death. Like to give an example here, personally, very sad to not see a jackal listed on this survey as when I was once camping in South Africa, my my tent mate, huge animal enthusiast, had gone down to the watering hole left open the tent flap and a jackal came in and I kicked it. So I say I won that fight because the jackal left the tent, (laughs) did not die to be clear, but I won the fight. I don't think I could beat a goose though. So I mean like the death question you raise is interesting, Galen, but if it's just like carving out your space, your territory, like Sarah defeated the jackal. Sarah, not gonna defeat a goose. But that's because the videos that you see of geese fight online are videos where the goose is being the aggressor and the human is just trying to get away from the situation. But if you're in a situation where it's like, okay, goose and human, you are both fighting each other, I feel like you might be able to spin this as like, women are underestimating their abilities in that situation, as opposed to men are overestimating their abilities. Because most geese encounters, you're just like, get me away from this agitated goose that's trying to protect its kids or whatever, not like, okay, you're fighting the goose. Okay, maybe, maybe a human can take on a goose. Maybe. Maybe. Well, I don't know about the specifics on goose feet, but I would imagine that those could hurt Yeah. when they're flapping around by you and attacking. But the rest of these creatures above goose, in terms of danger, they probably could all kill you <laughs> without too much trouble. Like an eagle, a large yeah, dog. eagles have, like, serious talons. They'll rip you yeah. up. It won't even, it's not even about the beak. It's like they'll just tear you apart, you know? Interesting. We should have invited on an animal expert, actually, for this segment. <laughs> no, there was a great, like, murder story a while ago. It was, like, an, was an owl involved? Like, birds and their talons. Serious thing. Don't mess around. So if we have any animal experts listening, please feel free to weigh in on this goose question. I'm genuinely curious. So majorities of both men and women say they could take on a goose. It's 51% of women and 71% of men. I feel like the 49% of women or whatever it was, I don't know if there are any undecideds in this poll, might be short-selling themselves as opposed to the the common take that was like men are too confident that they can take on a goose. But let's maybe ask the broader question here, which is in the good use of polling or bad use of polling universe, do these seemingly silly surveys actually teach us interesting stuff about humans or is this just clickbait? And if so, what kinds of things do they teach us? I mean, I do think that this poll is a weirdly good use of polling. I think a lot of these types of polls would normally would not fall into that category. But for me, it's just sort of like a an amusing reminder of men overestimating themselves. I mean, frankly, as a fellow man, I'm just like wowed by the, the people who would have... The 38% who say they could beat an eagle? Yeah, it's like maybe a handful of the people responding yes to this question were doing it sort of flippantly. But a lot of people said, must have said yes, seriously. And that's just, I think, telling. Because, like, no, you're, you're not taking an eagle on. Maybe you don't realize how big eagles are. Oh, yeah. Is it a deficiency of knowledge of animals? Maybe that's an aspect of this. It's just not a full understanding. It's like, oh, I get it. A grizzly bear is super dangerous. So very few people are going to say yes to this. But, you know, uh, oh, I could take on a wolf. It's like <laughs> 16% of men said they could take on a wolf. Like if a human meets a wolf unarmed in the wild, that's like scary as can be because if it actually attacks you, there's no way you're going to defend yourself successfully. Grab a big stick, 
for these kind of polls, I normally am more of a wet blanket where I'm like, what is this actually telling me? And I kind of do feel like that about this poll. That said, though, I mean, what it's really trying to capture in particular, because it is slicing it by how women and men responded, is gender gaps. And that often in and of itself in more traditional polling can yield answers where people aren't necessarily tuning into it. Like this is a cross-section that appealed to all different corners of the internet. So if it does speak to false male bravado or overconfidence and in a way that's outside of the normal circles that would talk about this, good use of polling. Okay, fair enough. What kinds of non-political questions would you like to see pollsters ask Americans to get a sense of certain divides or nuances or whatever in American culture. Like if you could design your own survey, put it to Americans, maybe something as silly as this, what would you ask them? Mine's not silly, but on the men, women, gender gap thing, I thought the Times recently, they did a really good one on like what you think household chores, like either who's doing them, how long you think a task would take. Because again, like it exposed a lot of real gender divides where like men just didn't factor in the amount of time it took to make like a grocery list or something. And so, right, like I think this is a much more fun way to show that to people and to steal something that political scientist Lynn Vaverick did for the Times back in the primaries that I thought was really cool was they asked voters what their preference was for food like Indian food or Chinese food and Italian food. And what they were trying to do is use that as a proxy for suburban educated elite, which can often be amorphous and hard to define from survey to survey. And it was concentrated in Iowa and some of the other early states. So again, it was supposed to be, you know, here we are in a state that maybe doesn't have a huge Indian population in the U.S. and what percentage was either familiar with Indian food or liked Indian food. And it was Sanders and Warren supporters, whereas like Biden supporters were towards the bottom for that for the Democratic primary. Again, as a kind of a proxy to show political beliefs and where they fall in the economic stratum. So there are, you know, like that YouGov poll, I think there are ways to kind of ask questions that don't prime people politically as we expect that can still show either gender gaps or political preferences that are masked, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so maybe we can be on the lookout for some less obviously political questions uh, that might tell us something about America in our good use of polling or bad use of polling segments like this one. But let's move on and talk about the possibility of a third party in the U.S. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. As I mentioned at the top, a group of Republicans launched an effort last week called A Call for American Renewal, and they laid out 13 principles like democracy, constitutional order, truth, pluralism, free speech, the rule of law, and they wrote that our nation's future should not be dictated by a single person, but by principles that bind us together. That's why we believe in pushing for the Republican Party to rededicate itself to founding ideals or else hasten the creation of an alternative. So essentially, in the wake of House Republicans ousting Liz Cheney from leadership last week, they're saying, listen to our priorities and our vision for a Republican Party, or we're going to create a third party. We've talked on this podcast in the past about how that part of the Republican Party, the part of the Republican Party that is behind this letter, this initiative, may not be particularly large, And so it's not clear whether or not they could successfully form a third party, given that that's their threat. But in this segment today, I want to be a little more abstract, maybe a little more political science-y, and talk about what conditions would be required for an actual break in the Republican Party to happen and for a third party to emerge. So let's lay the groundwork here, Jeff. What do you think we'd have to see in terms of how voters are identifying or what their views of the parties are in order to create a real division that could plausibly create a third party? I think a starting place for a third party movement to have any sort of legs is just a simple, strong dissatisfaction with the two parties. Now, on the face of it, you would think we have that. You see numbers and polls from like Gallup that's been tracking it for years of The percentage of people who say we need a third party is reasonably high. But if you actually look at the favorability Democrats have toward the Democratic Party and Republicans have toward the Republican Party and the people who lean toward either party. So most people identify with one party or the other one way or another, even if they initially identify as independent. Most of those people have a favorable view of their own party. And I think you would need that number to drop a lot. You would need a much larger segment of, say, the GOP and GOP leaners to say, I'm not happy with the current Republican Party, and to see something like what we're seeing from some anti-Trump Republicans right now to have any any legs. And the same would go for maybe just a broader, like, centrist or conservative, pro-democratic, small d, party or something to get off the ground to attract support. I think you would just need to see more dissatisfaction with the state of the parties from the people within those parties themselves. So where is the satisfaction level now and what do you think it would need to be at? I wrote something a couple months ago about this and it was in like the 70s, around 80% of Republicans have a favorable view of the Republican Party. I mean, those numbers are going to vary from poll to poll. But the point is, it's like, I think you would need to see that number a lot lower in order to actually have people entertain the idea of voting for another party And basically for there to be enough juice at the grassroots for people who want to create some sort of third party option to find people willing to take the time, put in the energy to organize and to fundraise for that vehicle. 
This is another real big challenge, or is the organization of a third-party movement. Top-down is nice and all, but <laughs> you need to find people, just lay voters who are going to actually back your movement. And that's really the problem for the anti-Trump Republicans, is there's not a lot of people out there. So in a more broad sense, uh, a third-party movement needs those kinds of voters to flock to their banner, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And as you were getting at at the outset there, Galen, you know, this is something that political science has tried to theorize for a while here. And from what I can tell, there's two steps for when the parties could possibly splinter. The first is a major issue that's likely to divide the country along geographic and ideological lines. Two big examples in when the parties in one case split, in the other case, there was a realignment. The first being the Civil War. The Whigs party at that point were divided on slavery, tried not to take a stance on it with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed new states and territories to decide whether they would be slave or free, so a compromise. But then that pitted Northern and Southern Whigs against each other, and so it created a space for the Republican Party to emerge. And then second, you know, in the 1960s, we talk about the urban-rural sorting that we now see in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and that came out of pro-civil rights legislation pushed by the Democratic Party and Southern Democrats abandoning that as they had largely been pro-segregation and moving into the Republican Party. So again, I think What we see in history, at least in the U.S., is a really divisive issue that needs to also then have geographical splits. And I think right now we do see in our politics the two big divides are education level and then urban-rural. I think what's missing right now in terms of why there isn't this like third-party fracture is Trump himself doesn't seem to be enough of an issue to create a third party. And so I think you really need, maybe it's something about the economy. At one point we were fighting over silver and gold. Maybe there's something now with economic populism that takes off. But at this point, I think that's the piece that seems to be missing. And you say that it has to be a geographic split, which I think gets in some ways at the fact that we have winner-take-all elections, right? Like winning 30% of the vote across a bunch of different districts or states doesn't get you anything. You actually have to have some sort of concentrated support in certain discrete districts or states or whatever to actually start gaining power and representation in Congress or at the executive level as state governors or the president. How much of what's preventing a third party is systemic based on the American political system versus we don't actually have the diversity of opinion that would require a third party in America because enough people are happy with the two parties. Right. Well, as you pointed out, Galen, winning 30% doesn't really get you very much uh, in U.S. politics. And that's because most elections in the United States operate on winner take all in the sense that if you do have a third party and they win like 28% or something, you don't get anything out of that. You know, in a country that has a proportional representation system, you would get seats from that. But we don't have that in the U.S., generally speaking. So it's not possible, especially at the federal level uh, in particular. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is not only does that situation just in general in our elections push towards two big tent parties, we also have the Electoral College. And this is something that most other countries do not have today at least, is this indirect electoral system where 
to win the electoral votes in basically every state outside of Nebraska and Maine to win all of them. You just have to have the most votes. And so that's just like another force on top of just our baseline winner take all just in a head to head election setup that makes it even harder for third parties to develop because the incentive to coalesce into two large groups so you give yourself the best chance of winning is exacerbated or magnified by the Electoral College being there as well, because obviously you want to win the presidency. It's the most important office in terms of power, and it's obviously the one that gets the most attention. It's the reason we have the highest voter turnout in the presidential election. So those are systemic factors that make it really tough. I think Jeffrey's right. There are a lot of longstanding reasons for why, even when there have been political realignments, why we end up with two parties again. You know, a period of many, we're sorting it out, the U.S. returns to the two-party system. That said, though, you can imagine either a strong personality, so say Trump running again in 2024, doesn't mean he would win under a third-party banner, but that could happen, right? It's happened before. President Theodore Roosevelt did that back in the 1900s. You could also imagine it around an issue. I'd mentioned economic populism earlier, but what about racial justice? We saw in the way that protests in the summer really captured a slice of the American population it hadn't before. If that remains a pressing issue, do the parties divide along that way? Is there a third party that emerges in that gap? There's a lot of reasons for why that doesn't make sense for the reasons Jeffrey outlined, but I still think the right issue and the two parties failing to take an authoritative stance on it could create the right opportunity for a third party because it's happened before. It sounds like what ends up happening is a third party gets created, but what that really leads to is a realignment where, again, we just get two parties. What would, in today's environment, that third party's platform be? You suggested some possibilities. It looks like, in this case, with a call for American renewal, it's something of maybe a George W. Bush Republican Party with a little more talk about welfare and things like that. Is that where a third party could potentially emerge that shakes things up? What is the gap where people aren't finding what they want with the two parties in this moment? What I see it as is kind of a disconnect. You're right that that never-Trumper, if you will, is kind of what is seen as dissatisfied right now in the Republican Party. And I don't think that matches up to where there's perhaps dissatisfaction among Democrats. For instance, even though the number of Democrats who are liberal has been increasing astronomically in the last decade, Over half of Democratic voters either identify as moderate or conservative. And so you could see a world in which a more centrist candidate, if they survive our primary system, does emerge and tries to make a big umbrella camp that appeals to both some of the moderate Republican voters and some of the moderate Democratic voters. The problem is Cheney and some of her supporters are not moderates. And so I do think While we have seen some economic populism crossover, for instance, I'm thinking about the 2016 primary, and granted, it was only 12% of Sanders supporters, but still 12% backed Trump in the general election. That says to me that there is something there about economic populism. I do not see it on the fiscal conservative axis, though. I don't know what that coalition looks like, and that's why I think when we talk about this, it's hard to see how the never-Trumper group gains enough of a robust body to form a third party. I think this is another place where it's difficult to see the path for 
really a, a third party to develop because I'm not really sure that gap between the Democrats and the Republicans truly exists in the sense of there being a very large percentage of people there. I just don't know if that's really true. There was a piece that Lee Drutman wrote for 538 in 2019 where he looked at people's partisan identity, how they affiliated, but then also their ideology. And it turned out that there wasn't necessarily a ton of overlap between people who might say they were independent and them saying they were ideologically moderate. And other studies have shown that you know, you might have someone who works out on average to be ideologically moderate, but it turns out they have very left-wing views on certain things, very right-wing views on something else. And so in terms of actually appealing to a large swath of the public to make a third party realistic, that's just another challenge. And again, I'm not really sure at the moment there exists an issue where you could grab hold of that. I mean, Sarah was talking about like you might need one or two really big issues to sort of break apart the norm right now, but I don't know what that actually would would be. I would say that like in the absence of that, we are seeing a political realignment of sorts in the sense that right now, white voters without a college degree, they vote Republican. That wasn't true as recent as the 2000s. That kind of shift has happened. And I think what's really hard about realignment and why it's so controversial is because it happens glacially. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, this will be something we're studying 50 years from now to kind of understand how the parties sort. And we'll see, too, in 2022, you know, do the suburbs continue to be good, fertile ground for Democrats? That would be one point in favor of realignment. Or if they flip back to Republicans, maybe everything I've told you is untrue. You know, it's just, it's always that give and pull and it happens very slowly. Yeah, we're talking about the conditions that would be necessary. So maybe blue sky for a minute. What's something that could happen in American politics that would allow a viable third party to be created? Would it just mean that like the Democratic Party has to move further left to a place that we thought might be out of the mainstream in a way that Trump took aspects of the Republican Party. What could create an environment where a third party is created? My thought is that you would need to have some outside issue that the two parties are not seen as adequately or even remotely adequately addressing that is causing like a crisis of sorts. The populists in the late 19th century really broke open because farmers were struggling out in the Midwest and West. There were multiple economic crises in the late 19th century that happened. And there was a push to basically to bring silver in as a form of specie currency because you would use gold. That was like everything was based on the gold standard, but they wanted silver to be an option for exchange so that things weren't as reliant on gold because it was killing farmers for having to pay off debts and so the Populist Party really blows up, really gains ground in parts of the country. And so you have a moment there where it was sort of a two-and-a-half-party system. But eventually that got swallowed up by the Democrats, or at least the anti-gold standard view in William Jennings Bryan in the 1896 election. So I think it's that kind of thing where the two parties are not initially not seen as addressing it at all. That would maybe be the issue. Maybe there's something in technology, since that obviously is something where you know, it's going to influence our lives going forward, maybe something with social media. I mean, that sounds crazy, but some technological thing that I, I can't name yet that could prompt some sort of breakage with what the current system is. Yeah, it's hard for me not to see a cleavage along economic lines, as Jeffrey was getting at there. I, I do think there is some overlap and we're ripe for that. 
I also think, though, you know, looking at the last two times American parties splintered, it was on a racial issue, right? It was on the question of slavery and it was on the question of civil rights. You could see a third race issue here. Maybe now it's police brutality. You know, it could be something I'm not thinking of, but how the two parties continue to sort along those lines. One thing we've seen, for instance, from the 2020 election was, yes, Trump made, you know, marginal gains with Hispanic and Black voters. But when you look at how they voted and thought about race, it was actually very similar to some of the white voters without a college degree. And so that sorting along class lines, does that continue? How does race play into that? Is the left seen, as you were saying at the top there, Galen, going too far on some issues? Does that cause Americans to sort along those lines? I think it really will take a big flashpoint issue more so than this overall like culture war that we're kind of in at the moment. I think that leads to minor atrophying and realignment. But for the watershed moment, you would need, I think, a big issue. And if American history is any indication, I think there's a good chance that that does fall along a racial line. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to leave things. And next up, our science team is going to be joining me. So Sarah and Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining the pod today. That was a good discussion. Thanks, Galen. Thanks for having me, Galen. Let's discuss the latest CDC guidance on masking and social distancing indoors for vaccinated people. But first, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Last Thursday, the CDC updated its guidelines saying that, quote, fully vaccinated people no longer need to wear a mask or physically distance in any setting, end quote. So, of course, that also means indoors. And that was after they originally published guidelines for vaccinated people saying they should continue wearing masks inside. We're going to talk about how this intersects with politics and public opinion. And here with me to do that is senior science writer Maggie Kurth. Hello, Maggie, and welcome. Hi. And also here with us is the host of Podcast 19 and science journalist, Anna Rothschild. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Galen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And listeners have heard this from me plenty, but if anyone out there still doesn't listen to Podcast 19, certainly go subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. So first and foremost, why did the CDC make this change that I think came somewhat as a surprise to a lot of people who have been watching the news coming out of the CDC or just watching news generally. I mean, not that it's a surprise because it's not in line with the science, but just a surprise in the sense that they didn't expect the CDC to make this call at this moment. 
And a surprise also in that the CDC gave no one no warning that this was coming. So I think there was that element of it also. Right. So there is science that backs up the CDC's decision. We have very good evidence now that our vaccines prevent infection and prevent even asymptomatic infection and also prevent transmission. There was this one study done in the U.S. among close to uh, 4,000 healthcare workers where they compared healthcare workers who'd been vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine to those who had not been vaccinated yet at all. And the ones who had been vaccinated were 90% less likely to test positive for COVID in weekly screenings that they were getting. So the evidence is really good that vaccination works and it's really effective. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the way the CDC did it or the timing of it makes a ton of sense. Or what other people have done with it since, yeah, right? Exactly. Like there's that level of, yeah, there was really good scientific evidence for why the CDC would do this, but there's not really good scientific evidence for instance, why my state of Minnesota is now having no masking mandates whatsoever indoors. Like there's like this weird extrapolation between what the CDC said and these political moves that aren't as evidence-based as what the CDC was saying, but were done because of what the CDC said. What do you mean there? So this is guidance for people who are vaccinated, but doesn't necessarily mean it should be applied to all people vaccinated or not vaccinated, and there are still enough people not vaccinated that they would question a, a blanket move? Right. The CDC is saying that you as an vaccinated individual can go inside of a building without your mask on and the chances of you contracting the virus, spreading the virus are so low that you can just basically go back to normal and like live your life. But as a population, we don't have enough people fully vaccinated that it makes good sense for us to be just telling everyone as a whole, hey, go out there and start living your life like normal. Don't wear masks inside. That's fine. Those are two completely separate things, but they've been conflated politically, largely, I think, just because there's no way to actually like do what the CDC said as a political move. Why is that? Well, because... What are you going to do? You're going to like check people. There's no federal vaccine database. Like no one actually knows whether you've been vaccinated or not. And there's both politically, socially, economically, functionally in terms of like what we have the infrastructure for. There is literally no way that anyone is ever going to do some kind of vaccine passport system in the United States. So really your only options are flipping the light switch on or flipping it off. And a bunch of governors looked at what the CDC said and flipped the light switch on. I think that in an ideal world, the CDC's guidance makes a lot of sense. But we don't live in an ideal world where everyone is following the letter of the law perfectly. And in this case, it's not even a law. It's just some right. guidance <laughs> that the CDC puts out there. I mean, we've already had a lot of trouble getting people to comply with mask mandates when they exist. And I think that a lot of people and a lot of politicians have seen this as an incentive to just lift mask mandates, which are hard to enforce anyway, and just throw caution to the wind and say, OK, you're all on your own. Make the best choices for yourself. You mentioned a couple aspects that are at play here, which is the political reality on the ground, the science itself that the CDC is working with. 
What about public opinion here? It seems like part of this might just be a response to, okay, it's been 16 months. People are done. Like, is does the data back that up? The data does back that up. We're still seeing like these big partisan divides between who is most comfortable returning to their normal routine. Like, I mean, there's, I think, a like a 20 point spread between Republicans and Democrats. But even among Democrats, 49 percent of them as of May 1st are comfortable returning to their normal routine. That's extremely high. That's gone up a ton. And most of that change has happened just since February. So there's definitely, I think, a sense of the vaccine is out there. I'm getting vaccinated. I'm going to go back to normal and live my life again. And again, in theory, that should be fine, except that there are these large swaths of the population who are not yet vaccinated. And when we talk about that, we're not just talking about anti-vaxxers. No, we aren't at all. I mean, there are 30 million American adults who are open to getting a coronavirus vaccine who have not actually managed to do that yet. There was a big story in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that was looking at this data. And that's a lot of people. And the majority of them are coming from households with incomes of less than $50,000 a year. And that makes complete and utter sense to me. Like if you look at how vaccine rollouts have been set up, I'm most familiar with what happened in Minnesota, what's been going on in Minnesota. And what we had here initially was that like if you didn't have high speed Internet and the ability to sit at home all day at random times, refreshing five or six different websites, trying to find out where the next scheduled appointments were available, you had basically no chance of getting a vaccine for a month, at least it was like that. And it's starting to get now to the point where that's easier to access, but it's still a thing where like you have to take the time out of your day to be able to go and show up somewhere at a scheduled time. And not everybody has the ability to do that. That's something that is easiest if you are working a white collar job, if you have the ability to take time off, if you have the ability to know that your evenings are free, if you don't have all of this cognitive load stuff on your life that makes it harder to jump and go make a change in your schedule. And the other thing is many of these people also can't get time off of work if they actually experience any side effects of getting the vaccines. One thing that was really sort of striking to me from that New York Times article was that they looked at the disparity between vaccination rates among people who were low and high on what's called the social vulnerability index. Basically, it's this measure of how well a community can bounce back after a disaster. So in the past, we used to think of it as like a natural disaster, like a hurricane, Now we're sort of using it for COVID. And it measures stuff like how much poverty there is in a particular community, access to transportation, things like that. And basically, the higher you are on this social vulnerability index, the lower your chances of being vaccinated. And the disparity is only getting wider as time goes on. How does the U.S. go about negotiating this question, because we know that not everyone in the United States is going to be vaccinated because people, by and large, aren't going to be forced to be vaccinated. So to a certain extent, 
some people won't be vaccinated because they don't want to. And maybe as part of our social contract, we're okay with going back to normal even when those people aren't vaccinated. Some people might not be able to get vaccinated because they haven't had the opportunity yet. Looking at the stats in that New York Times article, it looks like even amongst poor Americans, still 76 to 86% of Americans who are in that income bracket who want a vaccine have had at least one dose. So how does the political and medical public health community go about negotiating where the cutoff is when we say, okay, we have sacrificed enough, we've locked down enough, enough people are vaccinated, here you go, get back to it? To me, I would just love it if there was a cutoff. It feels like the way that a lot of these decisions have been made has been very ad hoc. So for instance, before we just randomly reopened and got rid of all of our masking mandates on a Friday as a surprise, the previous way that that had been set up was 70% of Minnesotans fully vaccinated or July 1st, whichever came first that's not a scientifically sound way of setting that up. Like if you're going to choose a cutoff for vaccination, you should actually have a cutoff for vaccination levels. And that should be how it's based on, not a randomly assigned timetable. So I think to the extent that I am frustrated with this, it is the way that it has seemed far more politically driven than science driven. And that there's not even a pretense at trying to make it about what is best from a scientific standpoint. It's just going straight to like what is politically feasible at this very second. Or what you know from like a social psychology standpoint. Right, yeah. So is it because people just stopped caring what the CDC had to say and, and maybe just stopped caring about coronavirus in general? Like what's going on? Like were we never on track with the science and so this is nothing new and the way that it would inevitably shake out? Like why is it happening this way? I mean, I think the reasons for that are complex and they range from everything from political pressure that legislators are putting on governors right now. Like there is that aspect built in here. I mean, trust in the CDC has gone down. Over the course of this pandemic, the CDC is still, like their net approval is still higher than any other leadership group around the pandemic and like what people are seeing as appropriate response. But Morning Consult has been tracking this since the pandemic began and trust in the CDC has fallen hard. You know, it started around 70% net approval back in April of last year, and it's down to 39% now. So it's really great in comparison to Congress, but that's only because our trust in Congress is at like 3% net approval. So there seems to be less trust in what the CDC has to say, and that's there for good reasons. I mean, the CDC has had a not great pandemic from the perspective of giving straightforward information and not flip-flopping around things and making sure that everything makes sense to people. Like, it just has not done that consistently. To some extent, I'm prepared to give the CDC the benefit of the doubt a little bit and just assume that they have a really bad communication problem. I'm not sure that this guidance necessarily in any sort of world could take into account just like the ways people will just disregard mask mandates whenever they want to anyway. Right, because to a certain extent, you start off the segment by saying like mask mandates aren't that enforceable to begin with. So like 
maybe people who didn't want to wear masks already weren't wearing them and it didn't really change much. Yeah. I mean, I think just in places where there were mask mandates, it was much easier to go up to somebody in a supermarket and say, hey, put on your mask, please. Yeah. And even though supermarkets still could say, we have a policy where we want everyone to wear masks, that's going to be way harder to enforce when people start coming in saying, but I'm vaccinated. The CDC says I can do whatever I want now. But it just seems to me like part of the issue here is that like it was just a week, two weeks before that they updated their guidance on outdoor air. And now this feels like such a huge change from that. So I think for a lot of people who have been following CDC guidance, this feels like a giant sea change that it's happened so quickly. Right, because when they updated the guidance for not masking outside, at the same time, they also gave guidance for vaccinated people indoors. And it was, in all circumstances, indoors, you should wear a mask even if you're vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also an element of, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't here. Like, if they didn't update their masking guidance for vaccinated people, that would not be an evidence-based choice. And the more people got to be talking about that, the more it would become obvious that the CDC was completely out of step with the science. And that would also be a bad look. I think for a long time, many of the epidemiologists that we've talked to for Podcast 19, Maggie, have been saying, we think the CDC is being too conservative. Yeah. Like indoor gatherings for friends who are vaccinated, for family members who are vaccinated is fine. You know, indoor dining for people who are vaccinated, probably fine. That being said, the CDC never had that kind of in-between step. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, and like, I think it's really tough because you have this organization that historically, these are the people that were telling you not to eat cookie dough, right? This is what the CDC has existed to do. And it feels like a big chunk of the problem with their communications over the course of this pandemic has been flip-flopping between maintaining that overly cautious cultural standpoint that they have had forever and then updating really fast in a way that feels forced or that feels like it's not actually following science because they switched so quickly on a dime. It's not knowing how to do that in between state, I think has been one of their biggest problems. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Maggie, in that oftentimes you hear the CDC update something about like how much wine you can drink or sunscreen or cookie dough, like you mentioned, and you get kind of accustomed to maybe not putting that much stock in whatever message you get because you've lived your life with cookie dough and wine and the sun for months and years. Whereas with the pandemic, you're dealing with something that's absolutely brand new. And so you are, especially in the early stages, really focused on the new information that you're getting from the CDC and maybe more susceptible to paying attention, feeling betrayed when you feel like they haven't given you the right information. And we've seen that in those numbers, approval fall to that 39% number that you said. Looking forward, what are the repercussions of public trust, public opinion souring on the CDC? Nothing good. A, it puts a lot of pressure on individuals to go out and find expertise in things they are not experts in and corral information in a way that we shouldn't have to because that's stressful and most people don't have time for that. And it also leaves you with a space of not having a good, reliable resource 
I mean, like the CDC has shot itself in the foot on this and it's something that hurts us as much as it hurts them. I will also say that I don't think that this is any sort of crushing blow to the CDC any more than anything else that's happened over the past year. The CDC has had a problem since the beginning of this pandemic, how they communicate. And as we know, there are large segments of the population, particularly on the right, that have not been following mass guidance since the very beginning. And so I'm not sure that this is changing very much on its own. I do think that as they've made communication error after communication error, that's where the problem starts to to happen. It's the buildup. It's no individual situation, but the course of the whole thing. Oh, sure. I mean, I still hear people talking about the, oh, the first two months of the pandemic, they were saying we don't have to wear masks and we shouldn't buy masks because it would take masks away from healthcare workers and, you know, whatever. Like, people still talk about the early pandemic days, I think, when they're describing the reasons that they're maybe not trusting the CDC as much. Yeah. There's one important thing that we haven't talked about yet, and that's kids. Kids under 12 still are not vaccinated. They make up a large section of the population. And so in addition to essential workers who may want to get the vaccine but can't, there's this other group of people who also can't get the shot. And Maggie, I know you're a parent. I was just wondering what you thought about that in line with the new guidance. Oh, oh yeah. This is actually one of the things that I have heard a lot of parents expressing frustration with the CDC guidelines about is that they're all set up like you're an individual single adult with like no buddy connected to you in your household whatsoever. And it feels like we've all sort of had to go to other newspaper articles, to outside experts to get any sort of sense of like, how do I approach this with my unvaccinated children? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that is extremely frustrating for a lot of people. I mean, it's certainly frustrating for me. And it's something where it definitely affects what's going on because how I move through the world on the days of the week that I don't have my kids is different than what I can do with my unvaccinated kids. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Podcast 19, like kids are not just extensions of their parents. Right, yeah, exactly, which I mean is is so true just as a general parenting philosophy, but it's definitely true here. Okay, well, that is a nice note to end on a little life lesson with the science. Kids are not just extensions of their parents, which my dad will not be surprised to hear when he listens to this podcast. Uh, But anyway, Anna and Maggie, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm sure we will check back in on the politics and public opinion and the science of the pandemic before this is all said and done. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.